Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. This podcast is designed to be a thought-provoking journey through the scriptures. Every weekday, my friend and fellow pastor Barney Estes and I walk through the Word of God verse by verse. As always, we'd love to know your thoughts about today's episode. You can hit us up at Pierce Point Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, so we're jumping into Luke chapter 21 this morning and or this afternoon. And we have a few comments from the Talk It Over section that we will incorporate as we go. So let's just start at verse 1. What stands out to you, sir? Okay, yeah. Well, this is chapter 21 of Luke is, uh, is, a, is a, a wide array of things, except for the first four verses that detail in this account of the widow and, her, and the widow's mites and the money that she gave to the treasury, the temple. The whole chapter recounts the Mount Olivet Discourse. Uh, regarding the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the second coming of Christ, and some of those things are interspersed back and forth between. So it's going to be fun stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's just jump right into verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they all, out of their surplus, put into the offering, uh, put into the offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Some obvious, uh, fascinating things right off the bat there. But one thing that has stood out to me in my study of this is the parallel that we see of this very story in Mark chapter. 12. Mark chapter 12 uh, shows us a very interesting difference in what is said here. So Mark 12 actually calls it a crowd. It says, and he looked up and saw the rich putting, saw the crowd putting their gifts into the treasury. And Luke zeroes in and says, it wasn't just a crowd, it was a rich yeah. crowd. What an interesting idea here. But it makes sense with the story because what Luke is trying to contrast is that all of that wealth didn't matter. It it mattered this heart that this widow um, expresses. Sure. It looks like that, that there was seemed to be, as you've said, a crowd. It was a, a, a line of people, I guess, that put, putting money into this treasury. These uh, boxes were called trumpets. They were kind of a funnel-shaped thing, small on one end and big as you dropped it in there. But it's it is so uh, notable that Jesus is a kind of a a people watcher, if you will. Yes. And he, but he's looking for a different reason than most other people. I think that he saw what a lot of the other people overlooked in that situation, uh, because uh, I the folks that were putting in a lot of money, there was a that these these. Trumpets evidently were made out of metal, brass, or something. So they made a lot of noise when you put coins, and there was no paper money at that time. Yes. So it was going to be a lot of noise as people put their offering into the treasury boxes. And so that created a little bit of a stir, but he noticed things that other people weren't noticing about it, and hence the story of the of this widow who put in two small yeah. copper coins. So, so before we get into kind of the real lesson of this, uh, this, uh, these chests or these, these curved chests, uh, were well documented in, in history. There, uh, I'll read you just a piece of a, um, a document that kind of outlines what they were. It says 13 curved chests were in the sanctuary. One of them, uh, on them was written old, Old shekelim, new shekelim, bird offerings, doves for whole offerings, wood, incense, gold for the cover of the Holy of Holies. Six were for donations in general. The term new shekelim is used for those paid annually. Old shekelim was uh, for that which was paid by men who had failed to pay them in the year when they were due and uh, paid them in the following year, right? In those marked bird offerings, the money for turtle doves was deposited. In those marked doves, money for young doves was deposited, but they were all whole offerings. 
Um, it's just interesting how much detail we actually have from history based on this idea. And so what we're learning here, what we're seeing here is that all of these people, these rich this rich crowd were putting their gifts into the treasury, and it was for a varying array of reasons. Now, we don't know why the poor widow, uh, which bucket, right, you would say, she was putting her small copper coins in, but what we do know is that Jesus says this poor widow has put in more than all of the rest of them, mm-hmm. um, obviously, if we're looking at this from a uh, from a literal rendering, it does not mean she literally put in more than all the rest. Mm-hmm. It meant, based on what she had, she had given out of her poverty. Yes. They gave out of their wealth. That's something you alluded yes. to earlier. It's it is very very interesting that that she put in the smallest legal gift. Now, they, the, the Jewish had, had a lot of their oral laws, and one of them was that you had to, you could, it was not, you, it wasn't, wasn't permit, permitted to cast in less than two gifts into the treasury. So she puts in two of the smallest de- denomination coins that you, that you can put in. There's two small copper coins, which were the two lowest dollar amount, or money, pennies. It was actually, yeah. I think they both equal a penny. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and then, but Jesus saw, when he saw her put that in, he saw something that nobody else saw and it thought, and and Jesus didn't comment just to make, just to make small talk. I think with these guys, I think he was, he thought that, that, that what he saw was worthy of a comment to these guys. Yes. So that, that coin was called a lepta, I -hmm. think is the name of it. But yeah, it was the smallest coin in circulation, smallest uh, denominational value. Uh, in circulation at the time. Uh, So uh, he says that this poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things, which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be a stone left. So he moves on from this, but let's get back to the, let's get back to the, to the woman. Her, her gift was something that Jesus actually praises. Mm -hmm. That's an important thing. I've heard people come up with all kinds of strange renderings of this, but this woman gave basically all she had to live on. Mm -hmm. And God actually commends her for this, not rejects her for this. I think the temple thing and all of this all have to do with how they viewed, uh, you know, these things dedicated to God. But this woman understood it rightly in that she just gave her all. She gave everything herself. There are many uh, commentators and scholars that say, well, you know, she could have kept back one for herself. She had two of those, like two of those small small coins. She could have kept back one for herself, but she didn't. In the and in the eyes of the world, a small dollar amount seems kind of meager and not really uh, worth a whole lot. Uh, and uh, while the gifts of all the people, you think about these rich people that were putting in just bags full of money, just yes. coin after coin after coin. But but it seems like in the eyes of Jesus that her gift was worth more, not monetarily. Yes. He wasn't concerned about the, the monetary worth of her gift, but it was worth more than all the others that had been put in. Uh, all of them put together essentially yeah, is what he's saying. Absolutely, absolutely. I think James 2 really weighs into the heart of this widow, uh, James 2 verse 5 says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor things of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? This woman was the poor things of the world, right? Mm -hmm. But what was she rich in? Mm -hmm. She was rich in faith. And that is a glorious uh, thing, according to God. That is a, that is a thing that he commends and praises. What a powerful thing. So we roll into this from four verses of this really brief story about this widow. 
into something that seems disconnected, but I think it all has to do with where they put their value in things, right? Where people put their value, um, uh, you know, as they live out their life. And these people, the temple, and while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Remember the setting. Everybody's dropping their coins, and people are talking about the temple and all of its adornment and everything that's beautiful about it. And he said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon the other. Now, we've already heard him refer to this destruction, this imminent destruction that's coming, but with it is going to go all of their, all of their um, uh, expensive adornment. It's going to come toppling down with it. So there's a connection here that's going on. In, um, he says, there won't be a stone left upon another, um, but it will be torn down. They questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. It's interesting, the end does not follow immediately. Yeah, yeah. Well, this uh, temple, this language, these guys were sitting around. Evidently, folks were commenting about the the, the beautiful stones and the adorned with stones and votive gifts, which were gifts that had been put there with uh, donations. But what we know about the temple of that day that it that it was a, a magnificent, huge uh, uh, structure. It was. It had been originally. Uh, was originally rebuilt by I think it was Zerubbabel and Ezra, but but Herod had been the one that had expanded it and yes. improved it. It, it. The this this temple was huge. It was it was nearly five football fields long, <laughs> and four football fields wide. It took up one sixth of the entire city, and so it was huge. Herod started his rebuilding work. In, in 19 BC, and 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 it and it was only completed in AD 63. It took 80 years for them to get this thing to where it it, it that uh, or, or get it almost to the point where it was when Jesus and and the disciples were in there. They were in where this all took place was in the evidently in the court of the women, which were didn't mean that it was only women in the court. It was just as far as women were allowed to go yes. within within the temple. Uh, but, uh, so it, and, and the temple wasn't, it was, it was beautiful. I mean, uh, Josephus says that the temple was covered on the outside with gold plates that were so brilliant that when the sun shone on them, it was blinding to, to look at that where there was no gold, there were blocks of marble and they had, they, they, they were, uh, overlaid with pure gold. So this, this was an extravagant building. It, yes. it wouldn't be any wonder that they would look around and, and just say, wow, this is an unbelievably extravagant building. And uh, uh, Herod had uh, had actually given a votive gift, if you will. It's been told that his was a golden vine, that a grapevine, clusters made out of gold, that the clusters of grapes on it were as large as a man. So these are all gold. Yes. And uh, it's so you think about the the elaborate adornment of this temple. Yeah, I think it's worth uh, just processing this a little bit that this this reconstruction, which begins like you, you pointed out in 20 BC, it goes all the way up to uh, mid-60s, the mm-hmm. mid-60s AD. Well, what uh, what is amazing about this is that Jesus is saying all these things somewhere around 30 to 33 AD. He's, he's speaking these things. The people who heard him and put him on a cross really did believe we've done away with this guy. None of what he's going to say is true. They continued building this ornate, elaborate temple with all of these jewels and all of this, all of this ornate stuff. They built it up until a few years before yeah. it just gets crushed. Mm-hmm. You know, and the whole while Jesus is saying, you're putting, you're putting your wealth into 
the wrong things. You're, you're, you're missing the point here. And I think that is where I see the, the parallel. I see the reason why Luke would record the widow's might in with this particular story, because she's the one who understands what is most valuable here. She just, she knows that it is God that she is trusting. She's going to give out of her poverty, not out of her wealth. She really is dedicated to God. These other people seem to be dedicated to structures and this and that. Make no mistake, they were given lots of stuff. They were given very good gifts. They were rich. Remember that, right? So they're giving lots of good things, but uh, their hope seemed to land in a building, and her hope was landing in the God of the universe. And so what a what an important tra- or, uh, juxtaposition mm-hmm. there um, in that story. As, as great as this temple was, as beautiful and as ornate and as beautiful as it was, Jesus said in Matthew 12 that he was greater than the temple. That yes. had to astound them. That <laughs> yes. He's like, I'm greater than you the wanna, temple. You want to start picking some fights, <laughs> but, that's how you do it. Exactly. Yes. He, I think I think that he realized, and even we kind of see a little bit. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with with admiring a <laughs> a beautiful ornate building, but for many of the Jews of that day, the temple had kind of become an, all, almost an idol, and oh, yes. they were very very proud of it. And as you said, it wasn't even completed at this point. No. And it, it and, and I think. One of the commentators, it was about sixty-three or something A.D. Yes. when it was completed. Seven years later, it's it's exactly what Jesus said happens to yeah. it. They only had it completed for seven years before the Romans came in and totally destroyed it to the point that they have trouble finding pieces of it. Yeah, I keep thinking about the the parable Jesus gives of the of the tower, and he says the builder of a tower needs to weigh all the cost about how he's going to build this tower. Otherwise, he's going to get halfway done, and then it's going to be a mockery. It's going to be it's going to, you know, his friends are going to say, what is this deal? You can't finish anything in this temple they may have had all the gold and the silver in the world. They may have had all of the wealth to build an ornate temple. The problem is the temple was half built. God wasn't in it. And so it's a mockery to everybody else because if God were in it, the Romans couldn't have destroyed it, right? Nothing can destroy what God has built. But they were able to destroy it because, quite honestly, it was a temple made with human hands. So in verses 8 and 9, I think we get to a really interesting idea. Uh, The question is posed to Jesus. He says, what are the signs that these things are about to take place? Now, here's what we have to keep in our mind in interpreting this. Jesus is speaking of something that by necessity comes after his death, burial and resurrection. Why do we know? Because what he has told them is going to happen. And no stone left upon another it doesn't happen until 70 AD so he is he's crucified he's buried he raises from the dead somewhere around 33 AD and so we have some almost 40 years later before this whole thing happens so Jesus is talking about the future here the question of course is what future are we talking about his second coming are we talking about 70 AD what are we talking about and it's my view that he is talk that that we're talking about 70 AD here so verse 8 says, see to it that you are not misled for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. The reason why I don't believe that this is the second coming is because what did that just say? The end does not follow immediately. There is a tragic thing that happens. There is a there is a strange falling uh, of Jerusalem, but there is but the end is not to immediately follow. Just this is one of those those uh, scriptures. That these are the scriptures that are very very difficult to go back and forth because, Without as you doubt. said, there Jesus in in many of these verses is talking about the destru- destruction of the temple and the city in, in, in AD 70, but then he goes into the, the, uh, the ultimate end of the age. And, and, and we can see because there again, you've said it, there are many things that, that he said that would not have happened during 70, that didn't happen. We know we can look back and see that it didn't happen. Uh, part of the, I, I, I think in Matthew 24, there is a, there's the parallel scripture that somewhat, 
uh, goes right along with this. Has a little more, a little more in it, but it, reading the two uh, in Luke 21 here and Matthew 24 seems to give you a, a little, a little better picture. But I think you have to understand where Jesus stops talking about the destruction in 70 A.D. and then starts to talk about the, the, uh, the his his return and the ultimate end of the age right and and there there are distinct distinct differences but if you if you're not careful you'll read one into the other yeah no no doubt so this idea of the end is not going to come right away um, refers to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem just mentioned. It repudiates the claim of the false prophets back in verse 8. I mean, it's just one one verse earlier that the time is near. No, the time the time is not near, that it doesn't doesn't matter, right? There, there is a there is a destruction coming and the time and the end will not come right away. Um, other things are going to take place before all of this occurs, and these other things, I believe, are described in ten through the rest. So we're going to have we're going to have to get into the meat of the chaos here. So starting at verse ten, then he continued saying to them, "Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom." There will be great earthquakes. It's not just earthquakes, but great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony, right? And then we're going to we're going to understand some more interesting pieces here. But it's interesting, those signs, um, we've seen a lot of signs mm-hmm. like this, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen many things like this. Uh, you can't conclude a particular time from these kinds of things. Nations have been rising against nations, kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes, plagues, famines, all kinds of terrors mm-hmm. and signs from heaven. So it's just interesting language, and most people are all, are convinced that in their generation, the signs they're seeing are these signs. Mm-hmm. Well, these signs have been going on for quite some quite time. Quite some time, and they've got... And and the, when Jesus talked about those, there would be many that would come claiming that they're that they are the Messiah. Messiah. They saw that in their time. Right. We've seen it in our time. We've seen people that have that have uh, made some outlandish claims about being Jesus. We think of you know David Koresh and all of the different the the ones there. There there was a guy in uh, just a, a hundred years after Jesus, Bar Koba. Yeah, Kokba, Kokba. Yeah, that con- considered the Jews. Many of the Jews kind of believed he might be the yes. Messiah, but he he started a revolution and the Romans uh, Romans killed him, so yes. he wasn't the one. But as you said, there were many times. We still hear of wars and rumors of wars. There are uh, there are distur- disturbances. There are. We, he talks a little bit about some of the signs in the heavens now. The signs in the heavens seem to me to be, uh, and and uh, later on seem to be pointing toward the ultimate end of the age, in general. Not every time, not every time. Right, right. But uh, but it is very easy to get caught up in the things and not understand the timing of everything because Jesus doesn't give us the exact time. Yes, and and Jesus Himself would say, "No man knows the day or the hour, even the Son of Man." Right. So so what a challenging situation. I mean, just to kind of put uh, uh, put a stamp on current events for this time. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupts, right? This catastrophic eruption. You got to imagine that people in that area, if they would have known these truths about what was happening in this area, they're thinking, this is it. You know, this is the end of all things. They they talk about famine and pestilence. We see it in Acts 11. Acts 11, 28 says, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Well, you could have imagined that that was the thing that they looked at and said, well, you know, Jesus told us that that famines and these things were going to take place. The truth still remains that none of those were 
None of those said the end is tomorrow. What is said is that these are precursors to whatever is about to come, whatever is coming. So very interesting how that works. So uh, I do love the idea that there is hope in this message that says before all these things take place, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. Now we're looking, saying, where's the hope in that, Nathan? But look at what he says. He says, they're going to bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Verse 13, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. (laughs) Now, (laughs) I think most people look at it and think, you know, what we want the Christian life to be is reminiscent of what we hear in American lore, in American founding documents, where we say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The kingdom says no such thing. The kingdom promises life. The kingdom promises liberty. I've shared this before. The kingdom does not uh, uh, does not promise a pursuit of happiness. The kingdom promises joy, but joy is very different than happiness. Joy is maintaining a sense of peace in the midst of chaos. And so what an amazing thing that he says, oh, by the way, this is just going to lead for an opportunity for your testimony. Mm-hmm. Now, we look at this in the 21st century and go, no, thank you. Don't want I didn't that sign up on that. <laughs> I don't even want, yeah, I, no, no moss, right? I don't yeah. want that. Yeah, that's, it is amazing. I, I go back, I, it, it leads me back to <laughs> verse 10 where he, he says, he, the, one of the first things he says, don't be terrified first. Don't be terrified. Okay. And then, too late. But, the, but then, yeah, you say things that terrify me. <laughs> but it, 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 is, it is pretty amazing that, that it, when in verse 12, he said, before all these, uh, but before all these things, they'll lay their hands on you. They will persecute you, uh, deli- delivering you to the synagogues and prisons. Many of, of, the, uh, of the disciples that were hearing this, that happened to, especially as it relates to the 12. They, yes. This happened to them. Now, you, 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 so in one sense, although you cannot equate everything because something happened to one group, that it was exactly, oh, that he, everything else he said was meant for that group only. Not so. Yes. You, you, can't, you, can't take, you can't take that from that particular piece. But we do know that, that, that of the 12, they experienced much of that. Yes, absolutely. And and so we roll into verse 14, which provides uh, provides fuel for some of the most <laughs> obscure, ridiculous doctrines I've ever heard or teachings that I've ever heard. Verse 14 says, so make up your mind not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. Now, I do, I do think that this is an amazing thing that these people were called, they were commanded to make up their minds beforehand not to do something. That would have taken some effort. That would have taken them saying, okay, God's got this. God's got this. God's got this. But remember who we're talking about. These are disciples. They've been well-trained. They've been trained by the Lord himself. Mm -hmm. They've been walking after him. I mean, if anybody knows how to train disciples, it's Jesus, right? But here's what they say. And then we're going to talk about this weird idea that comes from this. Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. For it will, uh, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. There's this idea that says, and a like passage that says something along the lines of, don't prepare beforehand what you're going to say, but the Holy Spirit yeah. will give you what you need in that moment. And pre- preacher after preacher after preacher has used this to basically justify their laziness throughout the week. I didn't really prepare my sermon. I'm just going to let the Spirit of God take over and we're going to wing it. That's, the Bible doesn't say this, yeah. right? These people were not to prepare their defense. God would give them utterance. And here's the beauty of the utterance, they would have a wisdom in their defense that is better than human yeah. reasoning, better Couldn't than be human disputed. wisdom. Yeah. Couldn't be disputed. Yeah, I think probably when that happens, some of those pastors ought to be taken and they should they should persecute them, del- deliver them to the synagogues and prisons before the king, and just say, now, now you can actually use yeah. this as not exactly. being, not studying. Yes. But no, I'm only joking. Yes. I, don't, I don't mean that about any of our <laughs> brothers. So, so that other reference that we talked about, the Holy Spirit will teach you uh, in that very hour what you're to say. It comes from Luke 12, 12. And so we have these weird views of trying to twist these things out 
all that I bring that up for, to say is not that we should do what Barney just suggested. <laughs> Even, he's not suggesting that either. But but what I am suggesting is that um, that we have to read the Bible in its context. We have to read the passage with what it it is speaking to and about. Uh, you know what is it concerning? Because if we just want to piecemeal this thing together and make stuff up, my oh my. Mm. I can come up with some really obscure things yeah. if I want to. So, so really important um, that God is actually uh, God seems to be uh, telling them that they will have the speech necessary and the wisdom to defend themselves, or at least argue their point, um, uh, which no one will be able to resist or refute. And when I think about this, I actually my mind goes immediately to the book of Acts and Stephen as he stands trial as the first Christian martyr. And Stephen stands up and he gives one of the most eloquent gospel dissertations. It is flawless from start to finish. They were. It says specifically that they were unable to refute him, so they killed him, mm-hmm. right? Never once in this passage does it say, hey, God's going to give you the, the mouth to speak, the utterance to speak, the wisdom to speak, and by the way, when they can't resist or refute you, you'll get to go home free. Mm. Nothing says that. Nothing says exactly. You might die because of it, but they still won't be able to resist or refute it. Yes. Doesn't mean they won't kill you. Yeah. It's just something that's a, important. That's a so important point. It's such an important point because when I was reading through this, if you look at verse number 16, it says that some of you, but, but you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. But then wow. he turns right around the very next, in verse 18, two verses later, yet not a hair of your head will perish, but by your endurance you will gain your lives. So now, if you don't understand what's going on here, it's very easy to say, well, there you go, buddy. There's a contradiction in the scripture. That's it right there. Part, we have to understand that it's just exactly as you have said. Jesus is talking about many of the, many of the things are spiritual things. We, we know that this body is going to die and there, we don't know how that's going to happen, going to happen. Some of the 12 were absolutely put to death, but did they actually perish? Not from a spiritual standpoint. No, they didn't. There, it, it says in, 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 uh, Matthew, that they're going to sit upon 12 thrones yes. judging the 12 tribes. So those guys are not gone yes. necessarily. So it's important for us to not read a physical thing into a spiritual thing that Jesus is saying. Amen. If we take it physically, it's going to it's going to come across as sounding contradictory yes. at best. So if we read all of this in connection in in you know in concert with the other statements, what happens is that Jesus says, by the way, um, I'm going to give you utterance. That word literally translates, I'm going to give you a mouth. I'm going to give you a mouth to speak. I'm going to give you, obviously, you have a mouth. You get the point of the language. He's going to give you the utterance. He's going to give you the wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. It doesn't mean they won't kill you. Verse 16, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death. Okay, so that obviously is very clear. Some might be put to death, some might not. But that passage that you just read is so important. Verse 17, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Wait a minute. I thought, I thought if Christians lived fully the way Jesus called us to live, people would love us. I thought they would just be clamoring and just wanting to join the church. We see, we talked about this morning, a Facebook post in which somebody had established a very clear, understood, biblical Christian worldview. And the person responded back and says, this is why people hate God and hate Christ- hate the Christian church, because you you preach these kinds of ideas. Uh, Jesus preached that idea, what we were talking about this morning. Jesus is the one who tells us this. Guess what? If you really preach Jesus, the facts are on the table. You will be hated because of his name. So then verse 18, he says, yet not a hair of your head will perish. Now that doesn't mean anything about your body, but (laughs) anyway, he says, not a hair of your head will perish, but your endurance, but by your endurance, 
you will gain your lives. You know what that word lives translates to literally? Souls. You will gain your souls. The scripture says to us over and over, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Why does it say that? Because God told us that we would face persecution. And these people were going to face an immediate coming persecution. And they did. Many of them did. Absolutely, they did. So, it's so important that we that we not read a temporary uh, worldview into an eternal situation. It, it, many times, Jesus is talking about something related to eternity, not to their physical life on earth. I mean, face it, some of these guys did not didn't live to be old old men. They didn't. Exactly. They were they were killed in what we would call the prime of their life. Jesus would have been was in that in that situation. I mean, you know, so we can't read our temporary world into an eternal uh, situation that Jesus has explained here because it doesn't make sense if we do that. Absolutely, we will be confused. Absolutely, Matt Wesley on the on the U version in the talk it over section said that no matter who may persecute, hate, harm, or even kill us as Christians, Jesus promises us that we will not be harmed. That is our soul. He understands that word, right? Uh, That we will not be harmed our soul because through Jesus, through him, we have eternal life. It's spot on, Matt. That is exactly the promise that's given to us. There is no promise that we uh, we will walk out of this life unscathed but we will walk out with life. That is undeniable. So so verse 20 goes on and says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, what picture do we have here? I mean, this is as clear as day. Surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And in 70 AD, her desolation came. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Now, all of this has the strange reminiscent language of Jeremiah's prophecy that says you you have to get out, you have to leave, don't don't go back to the city. Those who are in, in the country must not enter the city. Don't do it, right? Because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. In verse 23, woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus is speaking a message to Jewish people who are in process of rebuilding a temple with clear view of what led to its destruction before, the Babylonian destruction. They are still rebuilding from this time. And what is so important is that Jesus is saying something that effectively says, we're about to repeat the same thing again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That to any Jewish mind would have been, what? What? We, we have come back from that. We have been restored from that. So he is effectively Jeremiah 2.0 in mm-hmm. what he's proclaiming mm-hmm. here. These Jews had a very similar, similar issue to what folks in our, in our world today, those Jews expected that the Messiah was going to return in glory when those Gentile armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem. But strangely enough, strangely enough, in that in that great uh, desolation of of Jerusalem and the temple, there were uh, uh, very few. I think they they don't know that any Christians were killed. But there was we 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 see through jo- Josephus that one point one million Jews were killed, and another ninety seven thousand of them were taken captive. And, 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 but, but the Christians followed the advice of, of Jesus and fled. The ancient, there was a, there's another ancient Christian historian, Eusebius, Eusebius, wrote that 
Christians fled to Pella in response. Now get what he says here. This guy's this guy's he's a follower of Christ in response to an oracle given by revelation. He's talking about what Jesus said. Exactly. 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 So, so now we uh, we turn the corner into the weird. Right. Oh, this yeah. is the this is the amazing thing. Now what we need to understand is that the text explicitly refers to what this is referring to. It tells us Mm. that this is about the Son of Man coming in a cloud. This is the second coming of Jesus. It is expressly stated we don't even have to struggle with it, or at least we probably shouldn't struggle with it. So verse 25, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, but When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption Mm -hmm. is drawing near. This seems to be pretty clear. It seems that's talking about Jesus' second coming. There are people who debate it, but anyway, it's just powerful. Even those that debate it can't deny the fact that there we have fairly good. We just talked about Josephus and Eusebius, uh, historians who have pretty well documented what happened in AD 70. Right. And and there was no no fulfillment of what he said right here in these these verses in AD 70. Those things didn't happen then. So it, it, even if those that would believe that this is still just a continuation of what Jesus was talking about with the with the destru- destruction of, of of the city in AD 70, none of the things that Jesus said here were going to happen when in during this time actually happened. So there's there there's proof positive that we, we, at the very least, we have no record of any of the things that Jesus said. Now we have a record of the things that he said that were going to happen in AD 70. Yes. It's there. Yes. So this is a this is a fun component of biblical understanding. So the scriptures talk um, talk about in Daniel, they talk about uh, the Son of Man and people miss a lot of times they miss the direction that the son of man is uh, is moving towards or from okay and I'll, I'll I'll make this clear here in a second so um, the idea in Daniel is that it says that the son of man is going to the father. Daniel is not talking about the second coming of Jesus. It's talking about his resurrection and his being seated at the right hand of power. Daniel is talking about Jesus's resurrection. Here, the language says that the son of man is coming in a cloud. Coming where? Not to heaven. We're not there. So it's coming to us. That's the language argument that I make when it comes to what this is talking about. In Daniel, it talks about Jesus going to the Father, and the Spirit will be poured out on us, and because he's sitting at the right hand, he's ruling. In this passage, the Son of Man is coming. We've always got to make sure we look at the direction that the Son of Man is heading. This time, he's coming. Why would he come to the place he already is? Right. This is coming exactly back. Right. It seems it seems clear enough to me. So I love that verse twenty eight says, "Straighten up, <laughs> lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near." That language of "straighten up" doesn't seem to be the same language as "make straight the paths of the Lord." It's actually language that says, "Have joy even in the midst mm. of the chaos. Mm. Straighten up." What do you have to be panic, panicked about? Why would you have to be fearful? You should straighten up. You should lift your eye, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, then he told them a parable. Yes. <laughs> like, Jesus, you are just hitting us left and right with these things. Behold, the fig, the fig tree and all the trees... As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. 
So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word words will not pass away. And then he goes on to this, be on your guard. Give me some thoughts on verses 29 and on. First of all, he he gives them, once again, I I love, I've said this dozens of times, but it's Jesus is taking something that's very simple that they knew about to teach them something that they didn't know about, the fig tree. Everyone knew that the fig tree is just one example of a tree that buds before the summer. uh, And and the idea is when, when it buds, I mean, the inevitable result is that summer's coming. And, yes. uh, and he says all the trees. Now, there are some people that say that when he says all the trees, he's talking about some other thing that the fig tree is Israel and, and all the other trees are all the other nations. I, I don't see that in it because I think it's not, I, I, it, it wouldn't fit in this scripture to me. I can't see it. Right. But, but the idea is when a fig tree buds, that, that summer's coming and the fruit's coming. So when in the same way, he says that when these signs that he's talking about are seen, that the coming of Jesus in glory to this world is going to be is going to inevitably follow. Now, again, we don't know the time. We get so caught up because we say, well, we should be able to calculate the time. And there have been many people that have tried to do that and have looked foolish in the, in <laughs> yes. the end. Uh, but 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 that's that's so it's so interesting the way that Jesus gives them very simple ideas to be able to relate to what he's trying to say. Very much. So one of the pieces of uh, tension in this segment of Scripture, uh, verses at least verse 29 through 32, is in this line that says, So you also, when you see this 31, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Now remember, Jesus has already said the kingdom of God is in your midst. Well, the king is in your midst. That is the way that works. But there is a not yet component to the kingdom. There's this, there's the now, and then there's the not yet here. But then verse 32 is the real challenge. This phrase says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things, uh, all things take place. Now that's a really interesting phrase in and of itself. All things take place, not all the things, all the things I just said take place. Anyway, it's a really strange wording. Read that. I mean, for yourself Mm -hmm, sometime mm -hmm. and realize it says until all things take place. (laughs) That covers a lot of stuff, all things, but it's that word generation that is absolutely amazing because people don't do word studies very often. It says, this word literally translates, truly I say to you, this race will not pass away until all things take place. This race? Yes. This people. People will, right? Like what in the world? Human (laughs) beings, okay? Truly I tell you, this Human race will not pass away until all things take place. That actually puts a really strange wrench in the idea of, and I, I, I'm just going to throw it out there. People can contend with it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But this is where it gets really sticky with the idea of certain people being raptured out of the world before a great tribulation takes place. Why do I say that? Because the scripture tells us that this, this race of man will not pass away until these things take place, which means men will be here yes. for this idea. Now, some might conclude and say, yeah, but the faithful do get raptured away. That's a debate for another time, but my point still remains. This is interesting because it doesn't mean Jesus' generation of people. This won't, until the millennials pass away, you know, that's, yeah. that's not what this is saying. This is a race of people. So pretty, yes. pa- pretty powerful. There are many people that, that take this, that exact idea further and say, well, he was talking about the generation that sees this happen. No, if you look at that, no, it, it, it doesn't make any sense again. Yes. Now, could it be that if the word was generation? I, possibly. But when the word is race... It changes the meaning it completely. Does. It, it absolutely is, it does. Is, it is race. So, so there, there are so many ideas and thoughts, and it's why it's so important, as you said, to really understand, do a word study, understand what these words are, because while translators do their very best 
to give the best word that they can come up with that fits with either the Hebrew or the Greek. Many times, in some translations, they get it partially right, yes. and most of the time they get it uh, right, but sometimes it's partially right. Yes. So, And then the other piece of this is that I think is very important that I've learned recently is that we can't take words that we know what we how we define them right now and put them in their world because it no. just not it's not the same definition. Absolutely it it doesn't work that way. This is this is back to that statement that I've shared before that words don't mean anything. People mean things by using words. Mm. That's a really tricky statement and I get why people are confused with it, but the but the idea here is if you said um, so-and-so loved so-and-so, you mean a type of love. You mean something by the use of that word. That word means many things. Love, as we know from the Greek language, love can mean a vast array of things, including things like phileo or friendship, and then you've got eros or erotic love. But if you say, my brother loves me, uh, it's very clear you don't mean one of those terms, right? right? right. So exactly. people mean things by terms. And when we are reading the Bible, we have to realize the writers and Jesus himself in this case meant something with the word used. Mm-hmm. He meant something mm-hmm. there. It all is confirmed by verse 33. Mm-hmm. What, what sense would it make for Jesus to say, truly I say to you, this current physical group of people called a generation will not pass away until all of these things take place and then follow it up by verse 33 and say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth didn't pass away. Mm, Right. So so what is the point here, right? The idea is that that the human race will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. Mm -hmm. So challenging stuff, very important for us to, uh, to at least... Uh, give thought to as we work through it. So heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. I love that fact that in in the end, what God says will always endure. Yes. I, I just love that. Yes. I love that idea. When you when you talk about that, it's so important. It's so important that I it what what it conjures up in my mind is that is that when. <laughs> Uh, when when God puts something in place through his word, I mean, it, through his word, he put this world in place. He put the universe, the stars, yes. the sun, the moon, and the stars in place through his word. When we think about what Jesus said right here, heaven and earth will will pass away. and But his words, which created the whole mess anyway, are not going to pass right. away. They, <laughs> his word, the word was there before Heaven and earth were here. Yes, yes. So we 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 have to keep it into the context that it's uh, of 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 the we're talking about the one that created the whole thing anyway. Yes, yes. So. It's an important thing. I get to interpret country speak for everybody for just a second. <laughs> when Barney just said he created the whole mess anyway, <laughs> mess in country language was the whole kit and caboodle, yeah. not a literal mess, yeah. like he made the problems. <laughs> anyway, so there you go, country interpretation. So if we compare this to other things, we see, we see not only that the Word of God spoken word uh, doesn't fail, but we also see the connection of that with with God's laws, with his commands. Luke himself said in Luke 16, well, Jesus, but, but Luke records, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail, right? So it's an enduring word. We see the same thing in Psalm 102, Isaiah 51, verse 6, I love this. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and uh, and the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die uh, in, in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not wane, because it is based on his word. It is spoken by his word. It's not going anywhere. No, exactly I just right. love it. It's so yeah. beautiful. Words are very important in, in, that, in that if when we don't understand them, as you said, thank you for <laughs> clarifying my mess. That's, all, that's, all, that's for all my, all my, all my <laughs> Appalachian, Briars, and Ridge Runner uh, crew. They all knew what I meant. All y'all. <laughs> but it is important that we understand 
what these words mean and understand what they're what they're about. But even even in this case, it goes even deeper than that. When we think about Jesus being the Word and and the Creator of all things. My goodness, it, it sheds a different light. Oh, on absolutely. So just before I move on, just to kind of harp on that that idea of the Word of God even more, Luke 9, 26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, mm. right? He says, The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The Word of God is that important. Psalm 119, 89 Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. These, this idea, it just cannot be overlooked that what is included when he says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He means his commands. He means his law. He means his, he means his created order of what he is planning to do. It means the, it means the, um, uh, again, as we just saw in Luke nine twenty six. it means the word Jesus, whom we are not ashamed of, right? The, the, the very gospel message that we declare all of that stuff. It's really important how serious we take the word yes, of God. Yes. I just think it's important. Yes, absolutely. So verse 34, he says, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Remember, we've learned that that's rocky and thorny soil. He's warning them again because that's something we've got to, we have got to guard against. And that day will not come on to you suddenly like a trap. Um, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Please remember yes. <laughs> that again. Verse 35, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What are we praying for? We're praying for one, the strength to escape all these things. It does not mean to be removed from these things. It means to endure, to escape through the fire, if you will. That, that would be the imagery that they, they have in their mind. And the second one, pray that you have the strength to stand before the Son of Man. Those who endure to the end are the ones who will stand before the Son of Man. I just think that those are powerful pieces of imagery. It is, and I, I, I think when we read this, that, that uh, what I see in this is that, is that we should pay close attention to where we stand with God, to where, where, where we're at in this. Are we being weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life? Uh, because if we are, if our hearts are weighted down with all of those things, it, it, on, the, on, on the opposite side, it, that day will come up on you yes. like a trap. Yes, and, absolutely. And, and Jesus is, is very clear. Uh, uh, and, and then he goes on what really, really is amazing to me in verse, in verse 35, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. That seems to be all. That's all. That all <laughs> is all. In the Greek, it yes. means all. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you're you're hitting on to something yet again there because that seems to cause another, throw another wrench in the whole idea of, well, the faithful will be raptured out and, and all of that kind of idea. Uh, it's just something that people have to weigh in their minds when they're making those arguments. Uh, we can have that discussion. I love that discussion. But, but the truth is you just have to look at the text and you have to be able to answer some of of the some of the critiques, I do think that this is is worth noting here. When it says that that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, the reason why Jesus seems to say that is, I gave you all the signs to look for. What are you panicking for? What? Why would you think this is a surprise? We we tend to believe that there's going to be this kind of trumpet blast and all of a sudden everybody's like, well, either I disappear or I'm in a bad place and I'm going, what is that noise? Is that the air raid sirens on Wednesdays of the first of the month? No. The idea here is we should not be surprised. The imagery is all over the New Testament with things like the virgins, the five virgins whose lamps were filled versus the five who were not ready. You were told that the bridegroom is coming. You should be ready for this kind of thing. 
The reason why he stresses you will not uh, be, be suddenly come upon. This is not the thief in the night idea. Uh, since that is the case, you should be ready by the things you see. Mm-hmm. I've given mm-hmm. you all the things to look for. Look for them, mm-hmm. you know? It just seems interesting. And, and if we wanted, if we wanted uh, to see how this has all played out, Jesus has just told them just a few verses before about the destru- destruction of the temple and the city in A.D. 70. And here, some 40 years later, that exactly happened the way that he said it was going to sure happen. Enough. So he's talking there. He was talking about a physical situation that there were going to be some there that, that, that were going to experience that if they were still alive at that point. And then, so, and, and then let's go back even further to the Old Testament where we, th- we think about the prophecies of God and all of the prophets that, that talked about the things that were going to happen. Is God faithful and true to his word? Is he faithful and true to the prophecies that he has given prophets throughout the ages of time? We know that he is. Yes. We know we can look back because we're. I I say this a lot. We're in a very unique spot in time. We have the ability and the resources to look back on things. Probably now it may be greater than this a hundred years from now. I don't know, uh, but we have a distinct ability in our lifetime to be able to look back and see. And we have technology that allows us to to uh, go back and see how all this played out. And we can see that it's true. We can see that it's true. There are are many things that are still being unearthed. I watched a documentary the other, uh, just this this past week. They are still unearthing things in Israel that show that all, many of the things that are being talked about in, in the scripture, that there were people that did those things and they got, they have documents and these weren't just parchments. These were engraved in stone. And so if we think that God isn't truthful and that we can't rely on him and that Jesus was talking about something, man, we need to, we need to check our faith. We need to check our, where we're at with him. Yeah, without doubt. And I think to, to go on even further with what you just shared, the, the destruction that came in 70 AD was pre-announced and it came. Yeah. This situation, there's a pre-announced thing. Signs in the sun, the moon and the stars, the earth dismay, among the nations, perplexity and the roaring of the seas and the waves. The soul comes from verse 25. Men fainting from fear and expectations of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That is imagery of a... a uh, uh, a supernatural force that is being shaken. It's not talking about God's heaven being shaken, but rather that there's a real spiritual battle that's going on. We, we see this all over the scriptures, but a real spiritual battle. There are principalities and powers in the heavens. They're going to be shaken. And all of this should not be a surprise. Not only that, Jesus is coming floating on a daggone cloud. Yeah, yeah. Like, what is the problem? Why is it that we would be surprised at all of this? Yeah. Well, Jesus tells us that we shouldn't be surprised at this. We should know that this is uh, this is coming because we're going to see these kinds of things unfold. Mike um, Mike Van Fleet had commented again in the talk it over section, and he rightly said, "The day is drawing near. Uh, are we ready? Father, forgive me for the days when I do things my way." Uh, I love that heart. I love. I've, I always love Mike's heart, but I, I love that heart that says. You know, the days are drawing near. We, we're seeing all kinds of chaos. Uh, my, my end time view is roughly summed up this way. We are today one, one day closer than we were yesterday. Uh, hold fast, stand firm, and wait for the end. Mm-hmm. That's what we're supposed mm-hmm. to do. But what we need to be doing when Jesus returns is be a people found with faith. Yes. We need to be a people. Yeah. When I return, will I find faith? When I return, will I find uh, those who are trusting in me? So verse 37 and 38 are the, the conclusion of this. Verse 37 and 38. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Uh, even in the midst of these eschatological, prophetic, wow messages, 
people are hungry to hear what it is mm-hmm. that Jesus has to say. And he's still openly going to the temple. He didn't try to hide. He, he, he knew what was coming. He was teaching in the temple. And, and uh, he, he didn't try to hide. He knew what was going to happen yes. just short time short time later. But he didn't try to hide. And I, I also like the fact that I, I didn't know that Jesus liked camping out either. I yes, there you go. I had, I, now I understand why, why some, of my, some of my kids love to camp out. I hope yes. it's a godly thing. You yes, know. it's only in the mountains. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, I'm absolutely with you. Well, that's it for today, guys. And if you would, please like and share this podcast with your friends. And finally, remember 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work.